You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening and welcome to Exodus Unveiled. And tonight we're doing our second part of Parshat Mishpatim, of our sixth installment. It's said that we are called the people of the book. And actually there are two books. The last two weeks we've been looking at the story of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. This week with all the Mishpatim, the many laws that were given through Moshe to be taught to the Jewish people. But tonight we're going to look at the second dimension of it. The second book is the written law. Moshe transmitted the uh, written law to the Jewish people, but with it there was an oral law, the oral Torah, which eventually came to be written down and is known as the Talmud. And we need to look at what is the origin of the oral law? How does it work with the written law? What is the Talmud? And how does Jewish law work today? So let's go back uh, a few steps. And that is to say that when Moshe went back up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, which is at the end of this week's Parsha, what was he doing for all that time? After all, after the, that time, uh, he wrote down the ten, God gave him the Ten Commandments. So first of all, according to many commentaries, the written Torah, which is the five books of Moses, Moshe started to write. So he wrote from the beginning of Genesis until this point in Exodus. Um, but that doesn't take 40 days necessarily. So during that time, Moshe was being taught the oral law. Now, many of the laws would come to be written, but if we look at the written Torah, the book does not stand on its own. What do we mean? There are uh, larger uh, themes written and transmitted, like do not work on the Shabbat, keep the Shabbat, but it doesn't tell us how. It only specifically talks about not kindling a fire, but all the other categories of creative activity were transmitted through oral teachings to Moshe and from him to Aaron and then to Aaron and Aaron's sons and then to the elders and then to the rest of the Jewish people. The Torah also talks about getting married, but it doesn't say how to do it. It talks about, it says to slaughter an animal in the way in which I will show you, but nowhere else in the Torah are we told how. And that is a key phrase because it indicates that there is going to be another body of knowledge, but that it hasn't been given yet. There are other times where the Torah uses vague terms, put a sign or frontlets between your eyes and a sign on your hand. What kind of sign? It doesn't tell us. The tefillin are part of the oral transmission. And then it tells us to slaughter uh, as well to be fruitful and multiply, but it doesn't define what that means. The Talmud has a debate. Doesn't mean two children. How many children? Two. A boy and a girl. Or do two boys or two girls work? So all of that is discussed in the oral Torah. And finally, another example is laws that clearly are not meant to be taken literally. Uh, do not cook a calf in his mother's milk from this week's Torah portion. How many people are going to cook a, a cow in the, exactly in the milk of its mother? So... It's extended, we understand, to any milk and any meat. That is 
the oral teaching that accompanied it. So in a sense, uh, the Torah are the uh, notes, are the chapter headings, and the oral law is the actual text, the actual body of, the, uh, of knowledge. And it's almost as if a professor uh, gave out his lecture notes and you never attended the lecture. So the lecture notes are the general categories, but not the details and the understanding of how they work. So this oral tradition was passed down from Moshe, as we said, and in the times of the Torah itself, you had the 70 elders and you had other judges. We talked about that in the beginning of Parshat Yitro. And then eventually uh, there was a body of called the men of the great assembly around the second temple period. And in the end of the second temple period, it came to be known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin focused in a sense as a Congress legislating law. And in a sense, one can say that the Torah is the constitution and the the oral law is the legislation that builds upon, interprets and understands that constitution. Now, like Congress, the rabbis also could legislate new laws. So, and the, but these are specifically uh, rabbinic laws, like the holidays of Hanukkah and Purim. Uh, those are rabbinic holidays. They're not found in the Torah. But in the Torah itself, it tells us to follow the teachings, the guidelines, and the laws of the rabbis. That the Torah itself sanctions the rabbis to not just interpret uh, the Constitution, so to speak, like the Supreme Court would, but also to legislate and pass laws like the Congress would. So it fo focused, it, it functioned as both of those bodies. Now, why would you have an oral tradition? Why not write it down? So there are many different dimensions to this. One is that when you have an oral tradition, it forces you to study with a teacher. Why is that so important? So first of all, it's so important because in, according to the Torah, studying Torah and living Torah is not just a transmission of knowledge. Integral to it is how to live it and the personal character and qualities that are needed to live it and to improve our character traits, to work on ourselves. And when we learn directly with a teacher, a master, we learn to emulate, we learn from their behavior, not just from their teachings, but even to see how they act and how they, uh, how they carry out their lives and how they carry out their teaching. Also from an oral tradition, you're much less likely to make mistakes. In the age of texting, we understand that well. You try to communicate with emails, you communicate texting, and sometimes there are gross misunderstandings. When you're face-to-face -face with someone, there's intonation, there's body language. You see when someone doesn't understand. You can respond to them. So the give and take, and Torah study is done with a chavruta, with a study partner. You walk into a Jew Jewish study hall. Uh, it's not like a silent library. It's uh, roaring with energy and with conversation and with debate. And the debate also leads to greater understanding and to more Torah. 
It also gives the opportunity for the knowledge to be more fluid and more open to interpretation. So this is, uh, these are all the advantages of having an oral tradition. Now, what happened? So in the times of the end of the second temple, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, the, Ju the Sanhedrin had to flee Jerusalem and move to Yavne near there. And Rabbi Judah the prince realized that some, a, a, um, a massive meltdown of the Jewish people was in the process of happening. Many Jews had been taken to Alexandria, to Egypt and North Africa. Jews had been taken to Italy. Jews were fleeing to Babylon. And he knew that if there was not one central teaching, that different communities would start to develop more and more their own teachings, their own Torah, so to speak. And so he felt like it had to be written down and centralized. And this was very radical because the Torah specifically prohibited it. But he overruled that. Uh, there is a verse that says uh, that in a time, there are certain times where you have to act for God, even uh, suspending some of the laws of the Torah for the greater good of the community. And so that's what was done by the leader of the generation, and perhaps the leader of the millennia of Jewry, Rabbi Judah the Prince. And he started to collect all of these collections of different rabbis' teachings. They were all edited and redacted with many of the disagreements still remaining, which is also part of what gives the life to the oral Torah. Uh, like the Supreme Court, where the minority opinions are noted, uh, it gives the full richness of the depth of the debate and of the discussion of the understanding. So another advantage to the oral Torah is that you can hear uh, the other side as well, and that is preserved. So that's why the Talmud, which was written down, uh, so the Mishnah was written down by Rabbi Judah the Prince around the year 200 of the Common Era in Hebrew, in the land of Israel. And then 200 years later, all of the studies of the Mishnah, which was written in shorthand, were written down in Babylonia, and that is known as the Babylonian Talmud or the Gemara. That was written in Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew, but same letters, some different words, a lot of Hebrew, like Yiddish, Hebrew letters, different language, but Aramaic is even closer to the Hebrew. And so that is the body of knowledge that is studied as the repository for the oral Torah. There is a Jerusalem Talmud as well, but it's much less studied. Now, um, some people will say, yeah, okay, well, the rabbis wrote this down, but how do we know it goes back to earlier traditions? How can you prove to me? So archaeology, once again, has given us very interesting finds. The Ketubah, the Jewish marriage document, is not found in the Torah itself. It's only in the oral law. And we found from the 5th century BCE, in other words, hundreds of years before the Mishnah, 700 years before the Mishnah was written down, you had a Ketubah. You had this aspect of the oral law. In the 3rd century of BCE, you have... Uh, documents which cite the destruction of chametz, the destruction of leavening before Passover. Also, a rabbinic interpretation and understanding of the Torah text that um, 
removal, tashbitu, is actually destroying. And you also have from the first century, uh, mikvaot, the immersion in uh, water to purify, and you have tefillin that were found from the first century of the common era. Also, dimensions only found in the oral Torah and found a hundred or more years before the writing down of that of those documents. So there are uh, the uh, Mishnah was arranged topically, um, agricultural law, laws of marriage, laws of property and damage and courts, uh, the laws of the temple and impurity, and the laws of the holidays, and um, in six sessions. Now, in the Talmud itself, there di- so there are different categories of law. So you have laws that can be what we call doraita, from the text that are written explicitly in the Torah itself. Uh, then you have laws that were given to Moshe at Mount Sinai, although there are very few that were not uh, written in the Torah at all. Then you have rabbinic expansion or interpretation from the verses, from an extra word in the verse. Then you have uh, an example is uh, from the biblical text, it looks like you might be fasting Yom Kippur on the ninth and the 10th of Tishrei, two days. But the rabbis show by understanding the verses and interpreting them that really it means to eat the day before and then to fast on Yom Kippur. Uh, so we have written laws, laws given to Moshe at Sinai, uh, laws learned through the principles of interpretation, which were given at Mount Sinai, the principles were, and some of the applications. Then four, you have rabbinic enactments, which are, for instance, praying three times a day. We talked about Hanukkah and uh, Purim, the holidays. And then the fifth category is rabbinic decrees, which says make a fence around the Torah. So for instance, don't eat milk and meat. The rabbis took chicken, which was not considered to be meat, and put it in the category of meat. Why? Because they were concerned. If people ate chicken, they would mistaken it for meat, and then they would think they could eat milk and meat. So that's the last category of rabbinic decrees. Now, the final note is, you might ask, how could the Torah uh, speak to certain things in the modern world? In other words, today we have electricity. And the question is, how do we know is use of electricity on Shabbat? Is that a transgression of working on, the, on Shabbat when there was no electricity back then? Uh, use, using timers for electricity, using an elevator that's pre-programmed. How do we know what those laws should be? And the way that the Torah works, the Talmud is case law. The principles are derived and then reapplied in modern times. And that, once again, is part of the whole dynamic of the oral Torah, that it keeps it a, a fluid, dynamic, flexible system that can address new situations as they come up. And so uh, it's considered that the oral Torah is really, uh, when we study Torah and yeshiva, the Talmud is really the meat and potatoes of Torah study for its rigorous analysis, for its global spanning of all aspects. And 
You might have heard of Daf Yomi. If you study a page of the Talmud a day, which takes about an hour at least, it'll take you seven and a half years to finish the entire Talmud. And yet this is an ongoing adult education program. There are thousands of people, perhaps tens, maybe hundreds of thousands who study the Talmud every day and who are involved in the engaged in the study of the Torah as a living uh, document, as a relevant set of teachings for all aspects of our lives, from our business ethics to our interpersonal relationships to our spiritual lives and to the uh, how we function as a Jewish people. So how does one know which rulings in the Talmud to follow if you're not a seasoned Talmudic scholar? So first one should be informed enough to know what, to know, what, you, know, what you know and what you don't know. And then it's crucial that everyone have a rabbi because different rabbis will give different interpretations, but uh, for another session, we'll talk about how the Talmud says, these and these are the words of the living God. In other words, different approaches and even different understandings can both be right in their own context. Have a Shabbat Shalom and uh, part two of Parshat Mishpatim.